0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well this is yet another episode in what is becoming a series on the Russian war in Ukraine. Like almost everyone else, I'm still thinking a lot about this. Not just for what's happening in Ukraine, but for the risk it poses for the rest of the world. We're in, I think, the seventh week of the war. And as you'll hear, I find myself still somewhat confused about what we should and shouldn't be doing in response. To help me sort it out this time, I have brought on Ian Bremer. Ian's been on the podcast before. He is a political scientist who founded the Eurasia Group, which is a political risk research and consulting firm. Ian is the author of 11 books. He has a new one coming out next month, titled "The Power of Crisis: How Three Threats." and our response will change the world. He holds a doctorate in political science from Stanford, and he was once the youngest ever national fellow at the Hoover Institution. Anyway, it's always great to talk to Ian. Here we cover the state of the war and the state of our response, sanctions, Biden's gaffe, or so-called gaffe, about regime change, fear of nuclear war, the logic of mutually assured destruction, the role of China in all this, the most likely outcomes to the war as Ian sees them. Anyway, the world is a mess and we are here to talk about it. And now I bring you Ian Bremmer. I am here with Ian Bremmer. Ian, thanks for joining me again.
1: Sam, great to be back with you.
0: So, um, I, you know, I, I thought we're going to talk about the issue that is uh, really the The issue of the day, and it's been the issue of the day for the last, I guess, seven weeks now. We can talk about anything else that might be pressing, but certainly the ongoing war in Ukraine is pressing. Before we jump in, just remind people what your background is. What do you spend your days doing?
1: I'm a political scientist, and I started this firm that does global political science about, oh, I don't know, 24 years ago now. i Look at global issues, but uh, my background actually is on Russia and Ukraine. That my PhD Mm. actually spent a year living across Ukraine, looking at issues of Russians living there, kind of back in nineteen ninety two, ninety three. For for heck's sake, and uh, and so this is something that, even though uh, I haven't spent as much time on it in the last ten years, it has uh, it you never quite let it go.
2: Mm.
0: Great. Well, so this is your wheelhouse. So I've, I've had two conversations so far about this ongoing topic. I mean, it's evolved a little bit since I started. I had an early conversation with Gary Kasparov, and then I had one with Yuval Noah Harari, taking different aspects of this. But it's amazing to see how public opinion domestically and abroad gets blown around. And you know, in the background here is this completely understandable fear you know, strangely resurrected by these events, but it really should have been a fear we've had for our entire lives of um, World War III, right? You know, doing something so stupid or ungovernable as to, you know, start the slide into an exchange of nuclear weapons or um, some other um, catastrophe of that magnitude. And that's really, that's making it hard to Recommend things in any kind of straightforward way, and so like when I had Gary Kasparov on the podcast, he you know the implications of what he was saying. I don't don't remember him saying it as starkly as this, but it was just you know now's the time to have a conventional war with this crazy dictator Vladimir Putin. I mean that's just if you're not going to draw the line right here, you really NATO doesn't mean anything. Uh, So all of this squeamishness around you know enforcing a no-fly zone and the implications of all of that that kind of talk is for cowards right i mean i'm giving this more topspin much more topspin than gary gave it but that's, that was certainly the kind of implication one could have drawn from his side of the conversation and of course many people find that absolutely terrifying and we have in you know domestically a kind of you know horseshoe structure to our politics where you have people on the far left and the far right more or less agreeing that we should go nowhere near Talk of that kind, right This is just it's insane. You know, we sh- you know, you, you, so essentially someone like Noam Chomsky and someone like Tucker Carlson could be expected to agree on this topic, which is the US has no business getting mired in a conventional war that could go anywhere near Armageddon, and we should be rethinking all of our promises to the rest of the world and clean up our own house and you know, all of that. So before we get into the minutiae here, I just want to get, just take your yep. temperature on the big picture here. What, how concerned yep. are you about all of that? And what, what through line have you found in terms of, you know, if, if you were in charge and could actually make decisions up to this point,
1: what do you think you would have decided to do? So I like your frame, Sam. I, I think that uh, Gary, I, I know Gary Kasparov. I mean, anyone in the field does. He has a, a very strongly held ideological position vis-a-vis Russia, and he comes to it honestly. If you think about the way he's been treated, you know, sort of as a former opposition member, incredibly brave as well on the ground in, in the former Soviet Union and in Russia. I mean, there's a reason he's not there right now. And so I, I don't want to criticize his, his feelings about Russia and his courage and his bravery about Russia. I don't think he's an armchair pundit. Mm. that's saying we should go to war and is willing to send your kids there. I, I think this is a guy who has, has the courage of his convictions, but, but I am very, very adamantly not with him analytically. Mm. I mean, for example, you said that it wouldn't mean, NATO doesn't mean anything if we don't have a conventional war with Russia. No, no, NATO means something precisely because we're not having a conventional war with Russia. Ukraine isn't in NATO and we have not given them even a membership action plan. And by the way, nobody seriously thinks we should. That was true before the crisis, and it's true now. So, I mean, the very fact that we are saying we are not prepared to actively defend a non-NATO ally, and we are prepared to defend NATO allies. President Biden said it when he was in Warsaw a week ago. Does
0: anyone believe that? I mean, does anyone believe we would defend Lithuania?
1: Yes. Uh, we sure. have troops on the ground in the Baltic states. And I, I think we, people absolutely believe that the United States, and not just the United States, they believe that NATO would actually defend collective security mm. other NATO countries. I think the amount that has been done for Ukraine, despite the fact that they aren't a NATO member, is kind of astonishing. It's certainly shocking to Putin. I think it's shocking to Xi Jinping. Mm. And here I'm talking about the destruction of the Russian economy, including freezing a majority of their central bank assets. There there was no one credible on this issue that believed that the United States would do that before this invasion occurred. The level of military support that's being provided to the very bravely fighting Ukrainians, as well as the intelligence support that's being provided to the Ukrainians as to the disposition of Russian forces on the ground. And all of that is part of the reason why Zelensky is still there today and part of the reason why Putin is losing and losing big. So I'm quite aligned with most of what the NATO alliance has done in response to this Russian invasion since it's happened. I'm not aligned with many things that happened before the invasion that got us into this position, and you and I can talk about that. But the the challenge that we have right now is that Putin's misjudgment was so vast that his position and the position of his country under any scenario is going to be vastly worse than it was before he invaded. And and yet he's probably still going to be in power. He's very likely still going to be in power, and and, and he's still going to have 6,000 nuclear warheads. And, and this is not just a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It is a conflict between Russia and NATO. It will be a conflict between Russia and NATO, even if we get to the point, hopefully soon, that we can have a ceasefire, that we can freeze the conflict on the ground in Ukraine. And, and that's going to be a hard thing to manage. And that makes things like another Cuban Missile Crisis thinkable, even though you and I clearly had hoped. That 30 years ago, when the wall came down, we had a peace dividend, and mm-hmm. we could stop worrying about that. I mean, the reality of this war in Ukraine is that the peace dividend is over. That's, and that's a that's a truly tragic thing.
0: Yeah, maybe define peace dividend. I think I mean that that phrase is not has it's been spoken a lot of late, but it's not something anyone has heard, I think, in in living memory. Uh, what do we mean by peace dividend?
1: We mean that. We used to have a Cold War in every, every corner of the world and we fought over every piece of land and it was either ours or it was theirs. It was Warsaw Pact or it was NATO. It was aligned with the United States or not. There's a global policy of containment. And, and, that, meant, and that was more important than any idea of globalization. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, most importantly for Europe, the EU expanded right up to Russian borders. NATO expanded right up to Russian borders. And the belief was that you didn't have to pay as much attention to national security. You didn't have to spend as much money on defense and that you could focus on the social contract and on economic policy and you could build your countries and that we didn't have to worry about World War III. Now, the Americans, of course, pivoted more sharply from that After the attack on 9 11, but the Europeans never did. And of course, under Clinton and under Bush and under Obama and under Trump and under Biden, the Americans have been trying to convince the Germans to spend more money on their own defense and they refused. Hmm. But Putin, in five weeks, has managed to convince the Germans to do precisely that. And that is structural that no matter what happens in Ukraine, the Europeans are going to focus on national security and defense as a top priority for the foreseeable future. This will be a generational coming of age for anyone living in Europe in the way that nine eleven and the wall coming down has been for a lot of Americans that this will this war in Ukraine will have that impact on the entirety of the European continent, and the eu is the world 's largest common market. It matters a lot mm.
0: and I guess um Given the, the necessity of the moment, we think that's a good thing, albeit an unfortunate one. It'd be great to not need to think about European countries individually arming up, but um, it seems like they should have done it before this, and we might not be here if they had done it before this.
1: I, I think that it is a good thing that Europe is together no question. And by the way, Europe was coming more together over the last decade. The the nadir was the Greek crisis and the EU almost falling apart back in 2009-2010. But right. since then we had Brexit and Brexit clearly taught the EU that none of them wanted to go through that. It helped strengthen the core European membership. We had the pandemic and with the pandemic a recognition that the wealthy countries needed to actually ensure that the poor countries were taken care of. And a massive fiscal transfer from countries like Germany and the Netherlands to countries like Greece and Bulgaria a really been Hungary and Poland, even countries that weren't you know, as aligned with the EU at all politically. And then, of course, you have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where a country like Poland and Hungary are actually doing the leading. They're taking the most refugees on Mm -hmm. the ground. They're deeply concerned about what this means for their security, and it's bringing the EU strongly together. But, you know, of course, it's also happening precisely because there will be a new Iron Curtain. And on the other side of the Iron Curtain will not be Eastern Europe. It'll be Russia, Belarus, a small rump piece of Russian-occupied Ukraine, and a breakaway russian republic inside moldova something probably no one's talked about on your podcast Mm -hmm. before and that is uh that's not a fight that is a disaster that is a small group of population badly treated kleptocratic governance massively authoritarian and heading for ruin but with a hell but but armed to the teeth Mm. armed to the teeth and led by putin and that's that is when people ask me what's going to happen how does this end my view is what it's not going to end. What do you mean end? What's going to happen is we're going to have a much more unstable global order with this really angry sort of Ru- Russia faux empire that, is, that has been cut off from the West hmm. and, uh, and is angry about it. That, that is, that's where we're heading.
0: Okay, well, let me, let me just kind of cycle through this morass again, because I, this is, I, I, unlike many topics I touch here, I, I feel genuinely confused about what I think we should do, what I think is would be the like, likely outcomes of any given set of choices we might make, and it's just it's, it's uncomfortable to be confused about what is perhaps the most important risk big. we yeah. run as a civilization. On the one hand, it seems to me totally untenable that we still live in a world where a single lunatic, you know, however amenable to a psychological di- diagnosis he might be or not, I mean, a single autocrat, a single kleptocratic uh, maniac who has less and less to lose when his back is against the wall, can threaten everyone in sight with death by fireball, right? And so we have a Crazy autocrat problem that globally speaking, we have to solve. The technology is too powerful. To have one person who can decide to hold the entire globe for ransom is just not a, a stable situation for us. I mean, we, we have to figure out some way to put that, to, you know, to close that version of Pandora's box. And I could be convinced, I think, that this is the moment to do that. Right. Yes, we're running a risk of him going completely berserk, but he's not a jihadist, right? He's not ideological in the way that would make him patently suicidal. He's somebody who has been rational or is, you know, apparently rational up until this moment. And in this frame of mind, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I, I, the distinction between Lithuania and Ukraine is less interesting to me. Why not? really arm the ukrainians you know fully why not possibly enforce a no fly zone for humanitarian purposes why not play the edge of this and unleash 100% of all possible sanctions so that we truly beggar russia i mean the idea that we're still that the europeans are still buying gas from him seems just ludicrous and why not maximize the chance that there could be some internal revolt against him right? I mean, this is really, the person who would, would solve this problem for us in the entire world is an assassin, right? I mean, we, we should, the assassination game is the game we should be playing here. And so in, in this frame of mind, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you know, Biden's gaffe in, you know, talking about regime change is a gaffe I can live with, right? Because you know, this, this is the, the vocalization of what e- every sane person is thinking at this moment. And is there a path here I agree to make such an example of an autocrat, right, that closes the door to this sort of thing happening in the future? I mean, is that one possible path there? Now, again, I, I can argue the other side of this entirely, right, so, which we will probably do, but just
1: give me a reaction to that
0: fairly hawkish frame of mind.
1: Well, one, we, want, we all want Putin out, there's no question. And if there was a way to actually accomplish that, I think that that actually was was feasible and didn't run existential risks I think anyone in their right mind would be thinking about it and lord knows the russian people have been suffering you know in some ways the most through all of this and I don't mean in the last 5 weeks I mean for the last 15 years so the, you know this is not a leader who is in any way fit for purpose in his country now we don't need to talk about all the problems that american regime change has experienced over the past mm. decades, and the fact that the Americans being responsible for such a thing would not be received well all over the world. But leaving that aside, I, I, let's, before we get to what can or can't be done to remove Putin, let's talk about the initial steps that you mentioned. You said, well, shouldn't we be arming them to the teeth? I think we're coming very close to doing that. The only reason, there was, a, there was an argument inside the White House about these MiGs. Everyone talked about the Polish MiGs. Should we give them the Polish MiGs? Mm-hmm. There was a willingness to do it. It was not because the, 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 the point was we were scared of Putin's response. It was an open question about whether the Ukrainians would be able to fly them. And secondly, the considered view by the U.S. administration that they would be knocked, they would be blown up before they had a chance to fly from whatever Ukrainian bases they would be running their sorties out of, that the Russians just have too much control of the air to be able to make that work. And, and the view was that if you decide to give the Ukrainians, after all this debate, uh, these couple dozen MiGs, and then the Russians blow them up, that's worse for everybody. It makes mm-hmm. Zelensky look weak. It makes the NATO look weak. So you shouldn't do that. That's, that's number one. The amount I think that the military support that came from NATO should have come sooner and should have been stronger. I agree with you on that point. I think we were late on it. Part of the reason we were late is because the Europeans were completely unconvinced by American intelligence that war was coming, Hmm. and the Ukrainians, of course, were actively undermining it. They were saying, "You know, you're 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 catastrophists. You're putting us in a box. You're making this more likely." You know cal- everyone calm down. That was Zelensky saying that that didn't make life easier either before the war actually started. I think that on the economic side, you know, you said that it's ludicrous that the Europeans are buying gas from Russia. I'm going to take the other side of that. I will say that let's keep in mind the Chinese, the Indians. I mean, you know, every developing country around the world is doing some business with the Russians. And in fact, the Indian government, not only just remember our, our friends you know, erstwhile allies in the quad not only welcomed the foreign minister, the Russian foreign minister, Lavrov, to Delhi, but he actually met with Prime Minister Modi. What the hell is that? Hmm. Like, that's a problem, right? While the Europeans are actually doing everything they can, they're the ones who have all of the economic dependence on Russia. Many of those countries with over 50% of their energy coming from Russia, and they are taking it in the teeth to unwind that as fast as humanly possible. The Germans are saying that they will have two-thirds of their dependence on Russian energy gone by next winter, and I think they'll get close to coming there. They just put an emergency in place that will allow for rationing to start of the German people. Hmm. Now, I mean, we're saying in the US we're willing to take higher gas prices, but the Europeans, after decades of ignoring this problem, out of decades of, of wrongly Allowing their policy to become beholden on, on core strategic supply from Russia, which they never should have done. Yeah. They are now en masse, altogether moving away as fast as they possibly can. I actually think the Europeans are doing a lot here. And I think the Biden administration is trying very hard to after a disastrous execution of the Afghanistan withdrawal, and after big embarrassment on AUKUS. And after four years of America first, where the Europeans really didn't think they could trust the Americans at all, Mm. I think Biden has actually managed a pretty strong, coordinated policy set, not easy to do, where the Europeans are sacrificing a lot more, but we're leading. And if that means that the sanctions have taken a little longer, and that means the weapons have taken a little longer, I mean, I'm prepared to make that trade. So that, that addresses, I think that addresses everything you were talking about. Before we talk about regime change in Russia.
0: So you're saying that the Europeans are still buying gas because it's just not actually feasible for them to zero out their dependence on Russia today. They actually need the, they need the energy and they can't get it some other way.
1: Uh, they, they are working as they're working so much harder and faster to get themselves out of that dependence than anyone would have expected. Mm. And I think that within three years, by the end of 2024, there will be no more Russian energy delivery to Europe. Right. And, I, and, and I think it'll be permanent. I think they're cutting it off. I think right. it's a very, very big deal. But
0: so that that's definitely in line with what I, this half of me, this, you know, sinister half of me thinks, the devil on my left shoulder thinks should happen. I mean, what, you know, why not simply say, okay, you broke your relationship with the liberal world order. The West, the yeah. West, yeah. And there is no path back, right? Like you're, it's like we, you're going to get out of Ukraine eventually. The ruble is going to be you know, used for toilet paper, and we're going to destroy you economically. Europe is going to get off your pipeline as quickly as possible, and you don't make anything anyone else wants, apart from fertilizer. We're going to solve that problem too, and you are now the new North Korea. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. That, that, so the last few sentences are where you veered away from reality mm. because they can't become North Korea. They won't become autarkic because they have an enormous amount of stuff that lots of countries around the world will buy. And as I mentioned, the Indian prime minister just met with the Russian foreign minister. He didn't need to do that. He did. And it's not just India. It's China. China's going to be the largest economy in the world by 2030. And Xi Jinping publicly is fully aligned with Putin's mm-hmm. worldview. He's fully aligned with the idea that American policy towards Russia in Europe is, is analogous to American policy towards China and Asia, right. the Quad, the Indo-Pacific strategy, AUKUS, you name it. So you literally, the, Russia will become completely cut off. From the advanced industrial democracies of the West. And right. that is it. We had 141 democracies that voted to censor Russia in the United Nations General Assembly. But in terms of support for sanctions, it's only the rich democracies. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's a minority, a significant minority of the world's population, of course.
0: I guess one question there why didn't um, the alignment with China convince India that they should move? toward us here because I'm given given India's adversarial relationship with China
1: because these aren't all coordinated moving pieces of one global puzzle the Russians have been selling significant defense componentry to the Indians for mm-hmm. decades and that's a perfectly functional relationship there's a lot of energy supply that goes from Russia to India now they can get it cheaper the mm-hmm. Indians are historically non-aligned and they like being a part of the quad vis-a-vis China but Russia has never been featuring a part of that that conversation Right. And so, and by the way, the Chinese foreign minister just went to Delhi, and he didn't get a meeting with the Indian prime minister. So the Chinese know, or the Indians know who they they prefer here. And you know, I, I think the United States has a better relationship with Modi than we have in previous with previous Indian PMs. It is becoming more strategic. But remember, when the when the when the pandemic hit, and the Indians were providing all of those vaccines for the rest of the world that was coordinating with the US, then suddenly they had a huge problem and they asked, please send us one plane of vaccines. And the United States didn't do it when they had mm. a real crisis. And so now we're having a crisis, which has nothing to do with India from their perspective. And we're gonna tell them, don't buy oil, gas, and, and military componentry from the Russians. They're gonna tell us to screw ourselves. So this is not, they're not part of NATO. And I, I think it's, it's important from, from a Western perspective, like, you know, you watch it, it looks like the whole world is with us. No, a very small number of, of, you know, advanced industrial democracies, largely rich white people and Japan are with us. We're together on this, but that's it. And that's not the world. It's not even close to the world. It's not even close to the world's economy, hmm. Never mind the world's population. So you
0: don't, th- you don't think the sanctions even ramped up to their absolute, uh, loudest volume are sufficient to harm the Russian economy enough to dictate any kind of outcome here because there's just going to be enough leakage with China and the rest of the rest of the world, the developing world, such that you're, you can't actually beggar Russia as a result of this?
1: Well, I mean, here's the, the interesting thing, and this may surprise you, and I'm, gonna, I'm arguing the other side of my point for a second here but it's interesting. China's trade with Russia in the last five weeks has actually gone down. And that's because China, China's economy has a hell of a lot of private sector companies, and they have lawyers, they have general counsels, and you know they understand trade law, they understand sanctions law. And so they, they look and they say, look, we don't care how, how friendly Xi Jinping is with Putin. We don't want to fall afoul of American secondary sanctions against us. So they are reducing their exposure to Russia. But what I am saying, what I'm reacting strongly against, is that Russia will not become North Korea. They have way too much critical mineral wealth. They have way, they are way too important in terms of defense export. They're the second largest defense exporter in the world after the United States. The world is too divided. The United States is no longer seen as the global policeman. We are not the architect of global trade. We are not the cheerleader of global values. and so just saying that we want people to do this. We do have the global reserve currency. We are going to hurt the Russian economy structurally. I mean, they will be in a depression on the back of this. Their GDP will probably contract by 10 to 15% at a minimum. That's a big deal. But you said, will, it, will, will the maximum sanctions be an action-forcing event? Mm. That implies to me, will Putin be forced to behave differently? in Ukraine and more broadly? Will he need to capitulate because of the sanctions? And I think the answer to that is clearly no.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So now to talk uh, the other side of, of, of my intuitions here, one thing that concerns me about any discussion of regime change, right? And therefore about Biden's now very famous gaffe is that, You know, insofar, I mean, it it doesn't matter how rational Putin has been up until this moment. If we begin talking as though any feasible resolution of this conflict is going to entail his ouster, that becomes synonymous with, you know, at minimum, you know, him being tried for a war crime somewhere or him being, you know, hung up by his heels in Red Square by his own people. I mean, there's just, you know, there's no good outcome for someone if we're saying, you know, that whatever whatever happens when this game is over, you, Vladimir, are not going to be among the players. And so putting his back that squarely against the wall turns him into, you know, functionally a, a martyr, right? I mean, it's like this is, he's now not incentivized to do anything other than cause uh, intolerable pain for everyone in sight. And so I, I, you know, I have a fairly strong intuition that if we're worried about that, we shouldn't be doing that, and we should be building him some kind of off-ramp. And I'm wondering what you think about that and what, what an off-ramp would look like.
1: This is, the, this is why I'm so pessimistic about where this crisis is going, is because I increasingly don't see a feasible off-ramp. Any off-ramp I see, because Putin's misjudgment was so bad, on the reaction of the West, on the willingness of the Ukrainians to fight, on on the readiness and capacity of his own military, I, I mean he, he is just as a consequence, he's in such a worse position. I, I don't know what an off- ramp would look like that could be remotely acceptable to Putin. Hmm. So I, I mean, look, he's already he's, he's, he's backed away from Kiev because he can't take it, and it is possible that he won't be able to take the occupied territories of the Donbass. Remember, he recognized that whole Donbass territory, that's two-thirds greater than what the Russians were occupying after 2014 and what they continued to occupy when the war started. I think the best way to lead to an off-ramp is to not allow the Russians to create facts on the ground that are unacceptable. And so this is the time to give the Ukrainians a lot more military capacity to prevent the Russians from taking all of the Donbas, mm. keep them in the territory that they formerly occupied. They've been blowing up Mariupol now for almost four weeks. It was a city of 430,000 Ukrainians. It's been completely devastated. Probably 20,000 Ukrainian civilians are dead. And and, and the Russians have destroyed it, but it's taken them a lot longer, and they're still fighting there. As of right now, they're still fighting there. And if if you can keep that fight going for another week or two, and you can show Putin that he's incapable of taking more territory in the southeast of Ukraine, the Donbas, well, then you kind of have a, the old 2014 status quo ante plus a whole bunch of dead ukrainians and destroyed architecture infrastructure all the rest but they haven't taken more land where if he takes additional territory and he annexes it into russia you know it's all it's impossible to restart a negotiations process there it's impossible to at any point talk about how you get any sanctions removed or reduced mm. so and i agree that the fact that biden has called him a war criminal i so i it's interesting. Everyone talks about this statement he made at the end of the Warsaw speech as Warsaw speech a gaffe, where he said, "You know, whatever it was, my God, you know, how can this man stay in power? We cannot let this man stay in power. I don't think it was a gaffe. And what I mean by that is I think if you had asked Biden after the speech was over, was he happy he said it, he would have said yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the reason it became a gaffe is because his overly cautious staffers watching him ad lib through the speech and seeing the reaction it got immediately put out a that's not our policy and as you know if you're on defense you're if you're explaining you're losing right and i don't think biden needed to explain i thought the statement he made the next day which was this was a moral position that's exactly the way he feels the way he felt and it's completely consistent with saying that putin is a war criminal but when you say putin is a war criminal I mean, you are saying, I can't deal with this guy going forward. Yeah.
0: That's this very guy, clear. If this, we're going to get this guy in the Hague if we have the power to do it. Like, this guy can't show up for a meeting because we're going to arrest him, right? I mean, that, that's... Yep. Yeah. So it's... That's absolutely right. Yeah.
1: So we have, right now, we have the Americans and the Europeans all together. But the farther we go, the harder it is to maintain that. And one point is that you've got the French government that is desperately looking for an off-ramp. Any negotiation with Putin at any point on any discussion, doesn't matter how much he's lying, let's just find a way to get a negotiated settlement, move this through. Biden doesn't feel that way. Biden thinks that there isn't actually an overlap in the Venn diagram between the West and Russia, the West and Putin. And so there's really, at this point, even though we prefer negotiations, there's not much utility in negotiations while the Baltic states and Poland and the United Kingdom actually don't want the war over because they want to see much more damage done to the Russian military and economy so they can't do this again. And the longer this persists, the greater those latent frictions, which haven't mattered much in the first weeks of the war because we're all just on offense all the time trying to put Putin in a box and trying to support the Ukrainians, suddenly the step 2 and step 3 and different approaches to those steps becomes more significant and and that's going to make this more challenging to manage precisely because sam as you mentioned because right it's it's hard to imagine how this possibly looks from the putin perspective other than i'm on offense other than i've got to find mm-hmm. a way to bloody these guys because they want to take me out
0: so then how concerned are you given the logic there, that he is going to escalate to the point of using tactical nukes or chemical weapons or some other weaponry, which is just on its face, totally anathema to the laws of conventional war as we currently conceive them. And and therefore, he would do something that's going to force a response from us that is uh, now taking us far closer to something like World War III.
1: So, I mean, never say never. Obviously, in this environment, but I'm—that's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about something else. The questions that you just raised are all about escalation in Ukraine. What happens if, what happens if he he decides he's just going to rain down weapons of mass destruction and just level Kiev? Hmm. What happens if he kills not twenty thousand Ukrainians but two hundred thousand Ukrainians? What happens if suddenly you've got millions more Ukrainian refugees streaming into Europe? But they've got burn are victims and they're disfigured. And what's I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to imagine the impact that would have on Europe and the United States and how dangerous that would be. I don't that's not where I think this is going. I actually think it's reasonably likely that by victory day, May 9th, the the Putin will announce some kind of success and that he will be interested in part because he doesn't have the troops and they're exhausted. And they're demoralized. He'll be interested in some kind of a frozen conflict or ceasefire in Ukraine. So Mm. I'm less worried about where this is going in Ukraine, but I'm really worried about where this is going between Russia and NATO. So one thing that we haven't seen at all yet is cyber. We Mm. haven't seen Russian cyber attacks against the West, but we know they have the capabilities. Why do you think that
0: is? Why do Why do you think that hasn't been unleashed in the first
1: couple weeks? I think it was because when you hit a target with cyber, it's hard to contain the effects. So when they hit Ukraine with the NotPetya malware, that ended up escaping beyond Ukraine and almost made Maersk, the shipping company, go into bankruptcy, hmm. caused billions of dollars of damage, shut down their their company. Same thing with FedEx Europe, same thing with Mendelez. I mean, this was, this is was a big problem. Hmm. So I think that part of it may well be That the Russians are have been careful about indiscriminate escalation. So they've killed a whole bunch of Ukrainians in Mariupol, but they haven't engaged in indiscriminate widespread bombing in other cities. They haven't tried to level Kiev. They haven't tried to level Kharkiv. You know, perhaps because they still they want to win as they define it and as that definition changes, but without necessarily precipitating massive response. From the West. But keep in mind, their negotiations so far with the Ukrainians have also started to say part of a successful negotiation is going to be removing the sanctions. Well, when it becomes clear to the Russians that they're losing in Ukraine and that they can't get any sanctions off and that the outcome is a strong, united, hostile West against them mm-hmm. and they still have China on their side. Yeah, I, I think the likelihood of cyber attacks, disinformation attacks, and the rest against NATO countries becomes much more likely, and that is enormously dangerous. So maybe take, let's go back to the broadest possible frame. We are now in a new Cold War between the West, broadly speaking, and Russia. We're not in a new Cold War against China, but we are against Russia. And that, that Cold War is less dangerous than the old Cold War in the sense that Russia's less economically powerful and in the sense that they don't matter for much of the world. That if you're in Latin America, you're in Sub-Saharan Africa, you're in Southeast Asia, there's not a, a, an ideological battle uh, in the way that there was between the Americans and the Soviets in every corner of the world for decades. On the other hand, this new Cold War is more dangerous than the old Cold War, In part because the Russian economy and their commodities are much more integrated in a globalized economy. So it has a lot more impact on people. But mostly it's more dangerous because we have all of these technologies that allow for elements of hot war between the West and NATO that are hard to deter against. They're usable, Mm -hmm. they're doable. The Russians have already done it. I mean, before Biden met with Putin back last June in Switzerland, it was Biden's agenda. Ukraine wasn't big on the agenda. The, it was, the big on the agenda was cyber attacks because yeah. that summit, you'll remember, came right after the, um, the colonial pipeline hack. Mm-hmm. And we, we said to Putin that this is a red line. If you keep hitting us with cyber, we're going to hit you back in, in, in due course. They stopped, but I don't think they're going to keep stopping. And I think that's a really dangerous thing.
0: Right. Well, that that certainly argues that we need something like a cyber Manhattan project where we figure out how to, to both immunize ourselves against it insofar as that's possible and become the most terrifying potential aggressor uh, on that front so that no one would want to send any malware our way. I mean, I, th- I think that's the, uh, you know, I, I got to think we're doing, we've done something like that, but the fact that we, you know, if we haven't, that just seems... Completely insane at this point, given how
1: have you? um, If you've had Chris Krebs on your show, I mean, he can talk to you about that. Yeah, I haven't. I I think part of the he's he's really good. I I think part of the reason why this is such a big problem is because the asymmetries in vulnerability between the U.S. and Russia are so great. I mean, we we have an economy that desperately requires transparency and data transfer, and you know, it's easy to deeply inconvenience to truly sideswipe who we are as a country that's just not true in russia
0: if you just saw the level of frustration i can fall into with my own two factor authentication you'll see how sure. you'll see how vulnerable Absolutely. our society is to not being able <laughs> to defend itself okay so i want to r- rewind to something you said there because i'm a little confused about the logic of it so currently the russian forces are performing so badly that if the the epiphany hasn't dawned yet it should be soon coming that putin just can't conquer and occupy ukraine right so he's not going to do what he thought he was going to do easily Correct. so two questions on that front and and therefore he's going to be motivated to announce some kind of victory and and back away and you know, move the goalposts etc but one question is why is that the case i mean why why are the russian forces as um, uninspiring as uh, they appear to be, and why was Putin surprised about that? I mean, you know, we have a reason to be surprised about that, I guess, but you would think he would understand what his forces were up for. And two, if that is in fact the case, if there's not just some reshuffling of Russian forces such that they're now suddenly a properly terrifying army, then why should we worry so much about them in other contexts? Why, you know, why not actually keep pushing? I mean, again, I understand that World War Three and and Armageddon is in the offing there, but short of that, I mean, I, 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 the, there is a sense that you know, if you're not a genocidal, suicidal madman, it's still possible for a nuclear power to lose a conventional war and to lose it decisively. Yes, I agree. So tell me why the world and Putin himself are so, um, were so confused about what the, what Russian forces were up for and why, given how inept they seem to be, why we shouldn't take this as an opportunity to actually make an example of the whole enterprise?
1: Well, two very different questions, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get to the first one because I I think this is really core. I think the fact that that real information just could not make its way up to Putin was the core problem that led to his disastrous misjudgment to fully invade Ukraine. And this wasn't just a one off misassessment, or it wasn't a bad polling methodology. It's a culture of misinformation. An obfuscation that is pervasive mm. around information movement in the Russian military, intelligence and the political sphere. I mean, things like, the Ukrainians are fractured, and a large pro-Russian base will rally to our cause." Uh, the Russian people are strongly in favor of us liberating Russians from Ukrainian oppression. Uh, Europe's not prepared to agree to substantial sanctions. Uh, Russia's financial reserves are large enough to weather sanctions, and they're safe from any attempt to block access to their funds. The Russian forces have all the equipment and the personnel they need, and they're all fully functioning. Russian soldiers are all contract active duty. There will be no conscripts involved in the invasion. The Russian plans are comprehensive, and they will degrade the entirety of the Ukrainian armed forces' ability to fight. I mean, to get all of these things wrong, and they got, Sam, they got all of those things wrong. Hmm. Multiple leaders around Putin had to provide bad assessments based on bad reporting from the very roots of their organizations. Low and mid and upper level officers were just unwilling to report deficiencies and problems before the invasion, in no small part because the misinformation culture cuts both ways. And, you know, a lot of the people Who could have reported problems were told by their own superiors that there wasn't going to be a conflict. So you've got decades and decades of that culture ingrained across the entire government, and it didn't change suddenly in the last month. So that's why they got it so badly wrong. And then on top of that, Putin, smart guy, likes to have lots of information, but has been really isolated in the last two years and hasn't been traveling around talking to top level brass and the rest he's been surrounded by a relatively small coterie of strong loyalists or yes men as they're called i think that's why we're in the situation with russia today that they are that's why putin could so badly misjudge that mm. and and that's going to continue that's going to continue with with taking of the donbass that's going to continue with him thinking about how he's going to do in the future with the Europeans and the Americans. I mean, yes, he's getting reality and he's very, very angry and frustrated with how it's going. And we know that that's true because of the fact that he has shifted his public war goals towards we've succeeded in the first part of the operation and now we're focusing on southeast Ukraine. But the the level of this misinformation is is appalling and 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 really, really across the board. Hmm. Now pervasive but the question of well, why don't we push them harder it's not just because putin's not suicidal it's also because you know when you're in an environment that you are starting to escalate real time with forces between both of those countries accidents can happen yep. escalation can occur and frequently you lose control of that cycle of escalation and and the war fighters in the United States and in Russia, some of whom still remember that stuff, understand that very well, and so there is I think that there is a serious reluctance to engage in direct combat between the United States and Russia for that reason
0: yeah, I guess uh, in this context, it would be good to spend a few minutes revisiting the logic of mutually assured destruction because it whenever I think about it, it unravels for me perhaps because it just seems psychologically totally unrealistic in any specific case so the reason why russia couldn't launch a first strike against the us and annihilate anywhere from 100 to 200 to 300 million people and get away with it is because they believe that in the whatever it is 25 29 minutes we've got to contemplate the end of everything, we are going to return fire with our ICBMs, right? And that'll be the the death of a hundred million or more Russians. And nobody wants that. And so certainly no rational person would want that. So we've been kept safe from a nuclear exchange, you know, a full exchange all these years. And that's the situation most people think we're in now when, when contemplating the, the, the absolute worst case scenario here, except it just seems to me that I mean, if you just imagine you know, Joe Biden being told that you know, it's all over, the big bombs are on their way, and now you get to decide whether you want to be the second most prolific mass murderer in human history by killing 100 million innocent Russians. To, to undo the, the crime that Putin and uh, half a dozen people around him who, who are in a position to influence the decision uh, have just committed against our society. The, the idea that Biden would do such a thing seems to me to be it seems vanishingly unlikely to me that, that, that,
1: that he or,
0: or any other sane American president would do that. And so, what deterrence do we actually have?
1: It's all about command and control systems. It's the fact that you have a limited levels of confidence that at that point in the crisis, the decision would be on or off made by one person. That is, the, you know, the, the fact that it descent, in some circumstances it can decentralize. Why do the Russians have tactical nuclear weapons? I mean, it's precisely so. It isn't about just a war game because deterrence works until it fails. And once deterrence fails, you're in a new game. Deterrence has now failed. You're no longer, this, it's not, there's no more further games to be thinking about. You've now failed and you mm. now only have the choice of whether you're gonna blow up a whole bunch of people or not and most rational people in that circumstance would not do it. That's the only thing that mutually assured destruction were based on. It wouldn't work very well, but it isn't. It's also based on a significant level of lack of information mm. about, wh- about at what point that decision would really be made by one person, or it gets either diluted or it becomes automatic. You have processes in place that require a responding launch. I think those are very big. Those are very big differences.
2: Mm.
0: Well, that's actually something that I w- was not aware of. So w- we have processes in place that take the president out of the loop, where it's, it would not. It would not be a matter of his decision to send a. a Twenty megaton
1: warhead to Moscow. If, if the weapons are already flying from the, for, from, again, here I'm talking about mm. the former Soviet Union, and right. I, Fred Kaplan is a great guy on this. Just came up with this great book, The Bomb. We yeah. talked about it at length. Yeah, you know, it, it, part of the reason that there were so many near misses in getting into World War III was precisely because of the various ways in which bombs can potentially be launched in response to direct threats. What happens, you know, if you've got nuclear weapons in the field, Mm -hmm. and you think that there's already been a successful decapitation attack against the commander in chief? You have to have those those processes of redundancy in being able to launch in place. Now, this is not something I've been focused on in the last ten years, frankly, but but we're sadly going to need to start focusing on it again. And I, I I do believe that this is this is a significant reason why people that are involved in strategic nuclear forces do not relish the idea of escalating short of that kind of confrontation with another nuclear power
2: mm.
0: yeah well the, the, the most dangerous thing about this moment from my point of view is not that anyone is going to intend to pull the trigger on armageddon but that given how hostile the environment is we're, we're not in a position to Debug misinformation and mistakes and confusion in the way that we are during a proper peacetime, right? I mean, in a a proper peacetime, if there's some radar signature that suggests that we just launched a first strike against Russia, Russia is free to interpret that as at least very likely to be a mistake, right? I mean, whereas in the current moment, It might be all too plausible, and that's that's what's terrifying. Absolutely, it was just a stumble into it. Much more dangerous
1: in this environment, and much more reason why you don't want to create that level of misunderstanding. Look, when the when the Russians decided a couple of weeks ago that they were going to raise their nuclear level of threat, as Putin directly ordered, the United States did nothing, and that's because, frankly, we've worked with the Russians for long enough; we understand their nuclear procedures. For decades now, none of that looked as if it required a destabilizing, potentially destabilizing response that could be misinterpreted by the Americans that leads you up a scale of unintended escalation, hmm. a, a mutual escalatory cycle that leads to a place that nobody actually wants. So, as a consequence, they took this action, we did nothing. And by the way, we told the Chinese that we were doing nothing. And the reason we were doing nothing is precisely because. We understand the Russian system this well. And frankly, it would be in our interests with China over time to build the same kind of mutual understanding of our military and nuclear capabilities. We are not doing that. And uh, so far, the Chinese have been unwilling to support that.
0: Hmm. We're not doing that because China won't do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we've made a few efforts at it. The Chinese haven't been very interested in it. And hmm. it, look, this is, this is not an environment where we're doing a lot of arms control. We haven't been talking about it. Uh, the Trump administration pulled out of some of our arms control agreements. START, at least, was resigned by Biden when he came into office. But we have a weaker level of institutional architecture around arms control and around strategic dialogue on nuclear weapons than we used to during the Cold War.
0: Mm. And why is it that you said that we're not in a Cold War with China? I mean, aren't we just one? errant word about Taiwan away from being in a cold war with China?
1: Oh, no, there are errant words about Taiwan all the time. The level of economic interdependence between the United States and China is massive. The level of integration between the European economies and China is very, very large. The the Europeans are with the United States completely in our Russia policy. They Mm. would not be. If we were to say we're in a cold war with China, the American corporates have no exposure to Russia. They have the banks have no exposure to Russia. They, many of them, China's their most important global market becoming more so over time. So I think for all of those reasons and the fact that the Chinese are not invading a neighboring country right now, we have a lot of problems with China. There's not trust in the relationship and Lord knows we're angry about their stealing of intellectual property historically, about the treatment of the Uyghurs internally, all of those things, those are all very different from a Cold War. We are not in a Cold Mm -hmm. War with China today.
0: What do you think we would do if, uh, I guess two questions here, what do you think we would do if they invaded Taiwan? And what do you think the Russia's misadventures uh, have done to the probability of that happening?
1: I I think that... um, One thing the Russian misadventures have done is shown the Chinese that they need to be very aware of their own military capabilities with forces that haven't been fighting in decades. Mm. So I think that they probably are worried about what their capabilities really are on the ground. I think the Taiwanese are inspired by Ukraine. They see the level of incredible support for a country that doesn't have an allied agreement with all these countries, getting an enormous amount of support. I think the likelihood of the Chinese going into Taiwan, irrespective of the Russia invasion, is extremely low in the near term because the Chinese have patience. And Mm. it would be enormously costly. They need those semiconductors. They don't want to fight with the United States right now. Look, as I said, not only is China reducing their trade with Russia, but we told the Chinese in a fairly direct and a way that they considered kind of hostile, if you give the Russians military support, There will be major direct consequences if you break sanctions. There will be major consequences. The Chinese have thus far shown no inclination to do either of those two things in reality, and I think that's useful.
0: So then, how does that relate to your claim that Russia really can't be made a a true economic basket case because of well all the leakage to China and and India? Oh, sure,
1: because yeah, yeah. Because breaking sanctions with individual companies that are pulling out of Russia is very different from the Europeans buying gas and the the Chinese buying potash and Mm -hmm. buying oil and the Indians buying defense componentry. I mean, all of those things are going to continue. Now, the Europeans are going to cut all of that off, but they're cutting that off by choice. The Chinese will not. So, in other words, the Russian, the Russian North Koreans have literally nothing to offer anyone aside from extortion. Yeah. The Russians have an enormous amount to offer a whole bunch of countries all over the world. And a few of those countries are going to decide just not to take any of it, but others will. It's nuanced.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> it is actually
1: it, nuanced. It is complicated. Yeah. China's position with Russia is complicated. Yeah.
0: Is there any piece of this that we haven't touched that you think is important? How is the war going? Now, I mean, obviously, this is the essence of a moving target, and by the time we air this, things could have changed. But what's your impression of of how it's going for Ukraine? Are we are they going to get the help they need in time to convince Putin that there's really no significant victory he can declare in the in the Donbass or anywhere else? And you gave me a, a a piece of this very early on in the hour, but remind me, what do you think the the most likely outcome is at this point?
1: I think the most likely outcome is the Russians succeed in capturing the full Donbas or close to it. They annex it. There will be some form at that point of ceasefire that may or may not be successful, but it won't be as much fighting across the country as we're seeing right now, probably in the next four to eight weeks yeah but but that that's not going to lead to an end of negotiate to an end of sanctions at all, no rollback. And so the Russians will be in this horrible position. The Ukrainians will have five million refugees ish in Europe. They'll be treated well. they'll be mostly living in homes with families. but it will it's part of why the Europeans are going to continue to see Ukraine as an existential issue for them. Hmm. They will continue to build up the defensive capabilities. They will continue to do forward deployments in the Baltics and in Poland and in Romania and in Bulgaria. And the level of tensions between Russia and NATO will probably increase, not decrease. There will be a big question as to whether or not the US-China relationship turns into a Cold War over time, because there is no trust, and because Xi Jinping and Putin are quite close. Uh, And if this gets a lot worse, and China doesn't push the Russians, uh, that, that makes it a lot harder for the Americans to stay You know, sort of in a more balanced position, especially because Biden keeps saying this is about democracies versus autocracies, which paints China inextricably on the opposite side. So if it gets worse, you could start to see this become a more ideological conflict as opposed to a more strategic managed competition between the two countries. I think that is a bit of a risk. The other question out there, which is a really important one, is for how long does the United States pay attention? Are we, are we capable of leading NATO in a year, in three years, the way we are leading NATO right now? Are we capable of being seen as committed for the long haul if Trump becomes the Republican nominee for the 2024 race? Yeah, can you um, we're imagine? We're by far the most politically divided, right? I mean, th- I think that these are, these are questions that we don't have to worry about you know, in the teeth of the Ukraine war, but as we think more broadly and long-term about what it means to be in conflict with the Russians and NATO at a level that is much higher than we were thinking about for the last 30 years. Remember, Trump for four years, he didn't have a single foreign policy crisis he had to deal with. If he's running, he's dealing with a foreign policy crisis. What does that mean for our allies around the world? Mm. I think that's a really big question. Well, many people who admire Trump
0: and Trumpism would say that, he didn't have a single foreign policy crisis for a reason and he wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had this one had he been president what do you think would have happened if trump had been in office this time around
1: i i think it is true that putin would be less likely to attack ukraine if trump was president because trump is himself so much more unpredictable in how he would react but i also think that if there had been an invasion the nato alliance would have been far more fractured It would have been almost impossible for President Trump to put together a unified response with our allies.
0: So, but wouldn't that have made him more predictable? I mean, the thing I would have predicted with Trump is for him to say, "You know, we don't we don't have a dog in this fight. Who cares about Ukraine? Most of you can't find it on a map. I don't even know what Ukrainian food is. Does anyone know? Uh, Let's make America great again." Yeah, he might
2: have said that. Yeah,
1: he might have said that. But you know, he was saying that about Iran for a while, and then suddenly one day. He decides to order the assassination of the head of the Iranian defense forces, Qasem Soleimani. Mm -hmm. Same guy, right? I mean, he did nothing for a year in response to all of these Iranian hits, including, you know, like taking down the largest refinery in the world in Saudi Arabia, and then suddenly Trump takes action. And I mean, this is the same guy that called North Korea, Kim Jong-un was rocket man, we thought we're going to go to war with North Korea. and. An ICBM as a red line, and then he invites them to a couple of summits, right? So I, I think that unpredictability mm-hmm. is the right frame for Trump. Not the idea that we think we know what he's going to do in response to a Russia crisis. I, I think that Trump doesn't know what he's going to do in response to a crisis until he's in it, and that's that's a problem for your president,
0: right? But ironically or perversely, it might actually, you know, this is the the madman theory. I mean, it it might diminish. In this case, Putin's willingness to invade Ukraine in the first place.
1: Yeah, I'd like to not. I'm glad that we didn't get to test that theory, frankly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, well, <laughs> 2024 is not not yet upon us, but uh, that could, it mass- could happen. massively There's complicate no things, whether it's Trump or someone like him. Well, Ian, as always, this has been fantastically informative and has pushed my intuitions around a lot. Is there anything we haven't touched that you think is important to say at this point?
1: Probably, but we can cover it again next time we chat. Look, I, yeah. I, it's always great. I love your, love your pod, and I'm, it's good to be back with you, Sam. And uh, this seemed like a really good time to have the conversation, so glad we could do it. Yeah,
0: well, thanks as always for your time, and um, we'll talk again when, when things change, as they always do.
1: Sounds good. Call me whatever.